and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.5, Not Your Uncle's White Lotus. The year was 1744, and the rebellion occurred south of Beijing. A martial arts instructor and herbalist named Wang Lun led a collection of peasants, laborers, and artisans in armed revolt. They quickly overwhelmed a local garrison and sacked a small city and several villages. Wang Lun's followers were in the thousands. They won several early engagements against the Qing forces sent against them, and rumors swirled that they were protected by magic. Magistrates abandoned their duties and fled as they approached. After several weeks, a unit of the Qing's Green Standard Army, made up of ethnic Chinese soldiers, engaged Wang Lun's soldiers in a long, bloody battle. In the end, his poorly equipped soldiers were overwhelmed. Wang Lun met his end, sitting cross-legged in his makeshift headquarters, his dagger and sword to his side. His purple robes and beard burnt up as he sat in repose, the world collapsing around him in smoke and flame. Last episode, I said that the long reigns of Kangxi, his son Yongzheng, and his grandson Qianlong represented a long period of dynastic stability in China, from the mid-17th century to the end of the 18th. But it's important to emphasize that this was dynastic stability, not general stability. Change was afoot in China. Population growth pushed millions of citizens to settle the hilly and mountainous regions that ran between the river valleys, which were the traditional population centers of Chinese society. Corruption at all ranks of Qing administration grew, and became a regular experience for everyday people. New scholar officials were expected to pay enormous bribes to acquire and keep their positions, and look to the citizens under their control to make up the shortfall. High levels of graft plagued the military, public works faltered, granaries sat empty, and large sections of the Grand Canal silted up. The largest and most costly of the rebellions that broke out against the Qing rule in the late 1700s was the White Lotus Rebellion, which began two decades after Wan Lung burned to death. In the south, a pirate fleet ruled the seas in the first decades of the 19th century and plundered Qing lands at their leisure. For most of Chinese dynastic history, the most dangerous border zone for the empire was in the north, it had been the source of countless incursions and two campaigns that succeeded in conquering all of China. In the 1800s, the biggest threats to Qing power, however, came from two new directions, the mountainous regions inside the empire itself and the quote-unquote outer waterways of the wide open ocean. By the mid-19th century, two new threats, the Taiping holy warriors rising from those mountainous regions and European gunboats sailing across the ocean would rise from these borderlands to bring the Qing dynasty into the Confucian society itself to its knees. But a few generations before that, at the end of the 18th century, many of the structural forces that will bring the rise of the Taiping also helped bring the return of the White Lotus. The rebel monk Wang Lun was himself a follower of the White Lotus, a religious sect we talked about back in episode 1.2. Followers of the White Lotus helped launch the rebellion that toppled the Yuan dynasty and enthroned a former Buddhist monk as the founder of the Ming dynasty. 
since the founding of the Ming Dynasty and their subsequent suppression by the man who helped bring them to the throne. The sect had gone underground, shed any political message it had, and focused on healing disease and bringing people personal salvation. The White Lotus beliefs had evolved since the 14th century. The focus of their worship became the Eternal Mother, a kind of creator goddess who created all humans and the cosmos itself and guided the turning of time. Maitreya, her emissary on Earth, would save the earthly followers of the White Lotus and support Niuba, the reincarnated rightful ruler of China. With the help of their earthly followers and the killing of non-believers, the Eternal Mother and Maitreya would turn time into the New Age, a new kalpa. The White Lotus found a great deal of support in central western China, where mountains divided the Yellow and Yangtze River basins, in Hubei, Sichuan, and Shaanxi provinces. This hinterland had seen a large influx of immigrants and population growth throughout the 18th century. As populations grew and family farms divided, each generation their farms became smaller and smaller, and there wasn't enough land to go around. This pushed younger sons to seek their fortunes elsewhere. Many parts of this region were populated by first or second generation immigrants from other regions of China. In some areas, upwards of 90% of the population was not native to the region. Some of these new arrivals migrated from northern China, and especially from the same region where Wang Lun had launched his revolt in 1774. They carried their beliefs south as they fled Qing oppression and spread the White Lotus in their new home. Life for immigrants in the hills and forests wasn't particularly easy. They typically used swidden, or slash and burn, agricultural methods and relied heavily on crops from the Americas. Access to land was contentious. By and large, the Highland society was more egalitarian than their lowland neighbors, but also more prone to violence. This population of itinerant farmers, military deserters, salt smugglers, and all other kinds of outcasts found the message of the White Lotus teachers like Wang Wang attractive. Many were unemployed or underemployed single men working in extractive industries like timber and mining. This is in contrast to farmers in the low-lying regions, which had long been settled and cultivated. They had strong lineage systems and social ties, with local leaders that helped maintain social cohesion and resist heterodox influences such as the White Lotus. After Wang Lung's failed uprising, the Qing launched several campaigns of oppression against followers of the White Lotus. One particularly brutal campaign began in 1794, 20 years after the original uprising. Several hundred captives were summarily executed, and many more were imprisoned or beaten. Others were enslaved and shipped off to Manchuria. The officials running the crackdown don't seem to have been too concerned about catching innocent people. If bribes were not paid, torture and enslavement followed. These crackdowns created a ripe recruiting environment for White Lotus leaders. They pointed to the brutal repression as evidence that the Qing had become so corrupt and oppressive that the end times must be approaching. The turning of the Kalpa was upon them, and they had to pick a side. Do you want to stick with the regime that shipped your cousin off to Manchuria because he couldn't afford a bribe, or do you want a chance to fight back? A few episodes ago, I talked about how, after riding the 14th century White Lotus Rebellion to dynastic power, 
the Taizu Emperor ordered the invasion and occupation by a quarter million of his soldiers of a territory that would become Yunnan province. Well, three centuries later, the process of colonization and conquest was still ongoing in Yunnan as well as neighboring Guizhou. Tensions between native populations and the recent immigrants and more recent immigrants reached a breaking point in 1795 when native populations launched a series of revolts. Around that time, there were also an uprising of Muslim populations living in the western province of Gansu. In response to these uprisings, the Qing mobilized soldiers throughout the empire, including in the central western provinces where they had been conducting the house-to-house searches for members of the White Lotus. Most of the soldiers were transferred west and left many counties extremely undermanned, with only token forces of fewer than 100 soldiers per county. For the White Lotus, the uprisings in Yunnan and Gansu were literally godsend. The White Lotus leaders saw them as part of a heavenly ordained plan to help them, with one leader declaring that the rebels were sent by the Buddha Savior to assist them. With only token Qing forces left in the central western provinces, leaders of the White Lotus planned for a spring uprising in which they would proclaim that an incarnation of Maitreya was born and was the legitimate Ming claimant to rule all of China. But local leaders opposed to the White Lotus caught wind of the plot and forced a premature launch of the revolt in January 1796. The White Lotus's campaign took the form of a classic guerrilla-style fight. They fought in small, highly mobile bands with support from local communities into which they could melt when required. They hid out in mountainous and remote regions and then struck towns and cities with overwhelming surprise attacks. When poorly supplied, poorly coordinated, and unmotivated Green Standard Army troops lumbered after them, White Lotus troops easily cut off their access to supplies. As so often happens when poorly trained government forces fight a popularly supported, highly motivated guerrilla army, the Qing troops lashed out at local civilians, which in turn only added fuel to the fire of the rebellion. The White Lotus uprisings were spearheaded by true believers, but they found allies among other groups within the area, like secret societies and bandits who ran salt smuggling, kidnapping or ransom schemes, extortion, and counterfeiting operations. Although numbers are hard to nail down, only a minority of the fighters, probably somewhere between 10 and 30%, were committed members of the White Lotus sect. But government oppression and desperation fostered uneasy alliances. This union of religious zealots, organized crime, and secret brotherhoods is a phenomenon we'll see again when we get to the Taiping. The White Lotus themselves were splintered and lacked a central command or leader that everyone answered to, although one man did take the lofty title of Heavenly King, the same title that Hong Shi Quan would claim for himself a half century later. The Qianglong Emperor ruled all the way up until his death in 1799, although he ostensibly abdicated to his son, the Jiangxing Emperor, in 1796. The last two decades of Qianlong's rule were defined by the elevation of one of his palace guards to become the empire's most powerful man, ruling in all but name. That man's name was Hessian. The Qianlong Emperor met Hessian around 1775 
when the 20-something was employed as an imperial guard. Hessian's stunning good looks caught the emperor's attention, and Hessian's rise to power was swift. He was promoted again and again. Within a few years, he was the head of both the Board of Revenue and the Board of Civil Affairs. So, he's basically in charge of the entire civilian government. In 1790, he married one of the emperor's own daughters, becoming a member of the imperial family. Hessian used his position of power to become almost unbelievably God-smackingly wealthy through corruption and embezzlement. He probably made the most money embezzling funds budgeted for the Yellow River Conservancy, an organization that handled funding for flood prevention along the river and its floodplain that is known as China's sorrow for its destructiveness. Under Hessian's leadership, the Yellow River Conservancy allowed the river to breach its dikes from time to time in order to ensure that the funds continued to flow. At first, Qianlong Emperor didn't take the White Lotus uprisings very seriously. These were internal bandits, not an invading army. So, no need to send in his elite Manchu bannermen, or even recall the Green Standard troops he'd sent to the west. Instead, Qianlong tasked the governor generals of the afflicted provinces to raise local troops and put the rebels down. Just send along the bill, and Beijing and Hessian will reimburse you for any expenses you have. Within two years, the affected provinces had over a million men under arms and on the government payroll. In order to raise such a force so quickly, the Qing officials paid well and took basically anyone. Demographically, the Qing were actually recruiting from the same population as the White Lotus. Training was poor and discipline was non-existent. When it suited, many of the government troops switched sides. It's actually estimated that in the latter part of the rebellion, a full half of the rebel armies were composed of former Qing fighters. The ones that stayed on the government side fought and killed local peasants as much as they killed rebels. They became so hated that they started calling them the Red Lotus for all the innocent blood they shed. Hessian helped the Qianlong Emperor run the war effort. And of course, since he was tremendously corrupt, he used the rebellion to get even richer. Hessian personally appointed all of the commanders, but only after they paid him magnificent bribes and sent him constant streams of gifts to stay in his good graces. To fund the kickbacks they had to pay Hessian and make sure they got rich themselves, the commanders hired hundreds of thousands of fictitious soldiers. You know how I said the Qing recruited over a million soldiers? Well, they didn't really. Many of those soldiers only existed on paper. They were fictions on invoices sent to Beijing, and their commanders just pocketed the proceeds after Hessian got his percentage. Another favorite way for commanders and officials to get rich was to steal the death benefits that were due to the families of the soldiers who did actually exist and died in battle. This led to some commanders to order their troops into battle just to die so they could collect their widow's pensions. The Qianlong Emperor, now in his mid-80s, followed news of the fighting obsessively, but the only news he saw was what Hessian wanted him to see. So, Hessian fabricated reports of great victories and declined to share any bad news that he received from the front. As long as the commanders kept paying him, they could keep their jobs. It was the world's worst senior scam. When the Western Rebellions began in 1795, 
the Qing treasury was flush with 70 million silver tile, and with annual revenues of something like 50 million. When Qianlong died, just four years later, the war had sucked nearly 100 million tile and the treasury was depleted. Though the central government's response to the crisis was ineffectual and counterproductive, it wasn't the only response. The White Lotus remained a minority of insurgent fighters, and within a year, other local leaders struck up a successful strategy for defending themselves and the status quo the White Lotus sought to overturn. They just wanted to grow their crops, sew cloth, or practice whatever trade they used to make a living. They wanted to have a family and see their children married, not fight a bloody war. To fight back, local communities established a series of forts and walled towns at regular intervals. These were stocked with food and water to support the locals and any refugees fleeing in front of any marauding armies passing through. When the White Lotus approached, everyone retreated behind the fortifications and a militia was gathered to man the walls. Since the White Lotus weren't equipped for siege warfare and were often trailed by a Qing army, the White Lotus forces were forced to move on. Other local gentry, who weren't quite as community-oriented, formed private militias to protect themselves, but sometimes these turned to thieving and pillaging themselves. The line between a local defense militia and a gang of roving bandits could be blurry. Upon his father's death, the Jiangqing Emperor ordered Hessian to commit suicide. Jiangqing knew he was corrupt, and he could never truly rule while his father's favorite lived. Still, this was considered a courtesy, and much more dignified than execution by a headman or some other method. He also ordered Hessian's property confiscated, though I don't think even the Jiangqing Emperor quite grasped just how much money Hessian had stolen from the imperial treasury. They found 80 million silver tile in his stockpile, greater than the entire imperial treasury before the White Lotus uprising had even began. Mansions with hundreds of rooms and nearly 200 square miles of prime farmland, 600 concubines, 460 European clocks, and more than 50,000 sheep and cattle hides were seized, and much, much more. Jiangqing then set about the slow process of removing the corrupt and incompetent government officials and generals persecuting the war against the White Lotus. The new emperor began working with and supporting the local leaders already resisting the rebels. But the local networks of fortified towns, villages, and other strong points were not enough in and of themselves to defeat the rebellion. They needed a force capable of defeating the White Lotus troops in the field. So, the same civilian bureaucrats and local leaders that helped organize the self-defense militias began to hire citizen soldiers from the local population. These locally recruited, locally controlled militias proved to be a potent fighting force that fought and defeated the White Lotus after several more years of bloody battle. These local militia organizations and their descendants will become really important when we get to the Taiping and are largely responsible for preventing the total collapse of the Qing Empire in the mid-19th century. By 1805, the last of the White Lotus was eliminated, although the region would remain a trouble spot for the Qing over the next several decades. Instead of demobilizing these mercenaries, the Qing tried to integrate them into their Green Standard Army. But, 
the discipline that came with army life wasn't their cup of tea, and several mutinies broke out over the next few years. The Qing had benefited from a lack of unity among their opponents. One reason the White Lotus sects couldn't come together and form a coherent and coordinated opposition to the Qing was that they couldn't agree on what form Maitreya was reincarnated as. They were so busy arguing about who should be allowed to lead the rebellion that they lost it in the end. The Qing had survived, but their prestige was tattered and the treasury was depleted. The fight against the White Lotus cost a tremendous amount of money, much more than all of the other major Chinese military campaigns of the 18th century. Over the coming decades, some members of the Qing state tried to make reforms to the Green Standard Army that had proven so ineffective and to the local militia system, but these reforms weren't very effective. So a few decades later, when Jiangqing's son, the Daoguang Emperor, decided to clamp down on some drug dealers from a small island halfway around the world, his empire wasn't ready for them to fight back. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Rating and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectsPod. Thanks. Thanks.